Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of 1 John. You'll find this letter of just a few chapters, the very back of your Bible, just after 2 Peter and just before Jude and Revelation. Give you an idea how far back it is. Again, I'd love to encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. I want you to be familiar with being in the Word of God with us as we study God's good truths together week in and week out. Here at Disciples Church, we very much value expository preaching where we preach through the Word of God. We effort to do very few topical sermons and have moved away from a modern effort to to make that flashy and try to add to it. We really believe the power for life change is in the Word of God. My job as a preacher is to get out of the way and preach faithfully what God's Word says. Help us understand it and apply it. I'm so thankful for uh, the faithfulness of God. Take us through the letter of Ephesians that we just wrapped up. If you're just joining us, we had 76 sermons, a year and a half, years of work through that letter. And we're excited uh, as an eldership to, to move now to the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, and so as we begin this journey in a new portion of Scripture, I want to take a moment and do a little bit of introduction this morning before we get to the text. Um, the first note that I want to bring to mind and to view is to help you realize, in case it's out of sight, this is not the Gospel of John. That's a different book of the Bible. Um, same author. Uh, that's the fourth book of the New Testament, much earlier in the New Testament with the other Gospels. These are the letters of John, and they're different. Um, Many, if not most, of the letters in the New Testament were written as pastoral responses to rebuke problems, difficulties, or sin that was happening among the brethren in different early churches, uh, topics that needed to be addressed, instruction that needed to be given um, according to the gospel according to the authority of God, not to tradition or what different people were saying. Uh, these letters are filled with loving rebuke, um, correction, gospel reorientation, and training for what is righteous in God's eyes. Not what we think is righteous in man's eyes, but what does he say is right, and we look to honor and obey him. Uh, this is much of the purpose of this first letter uh, of John. John wants those who read it to properly believe, to experience true Christian fellowship, and to be encouraged for the joy they have in Christ, uh, that it would be complete. Consider with me a few things about this letter. First, the author of John. Nowhere in this first letter does the author reveal himself directly. In the second and third letter, very short letters, the author reveals himself as the elder but not by name. Uh, That said, we have many historical reasons to stand firmly that the Apostle John is our author. Uh, First, all of the early church fathers unanimously, uh, when they would quote from this letter, ascribe it to John as John's writing. Uh, The language, ideas, patterns, speech, uh, writing, uh, tones all echo John's writing in his gospel. Very, very similar. The heavy testimony, additionally, of the author's um, eyewitness uh, and close relationship of Christ is a huge contextual clarity uh, as much of the endorsement we have even for his gospel. Um, 
It's worth noting the Apostle John is also the one who wrote the Gospel of John and who wrote Revelation. Um, He's known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, very close to Jesus. He's known as one of the sons of thunder, maybe one of the coolest titles in Scripture, um, along with his brother James. He's known in history as the apostle of love, uh, not really in a hippie way, but but of true love, the love of God. Why is he known as the Apostle of Love? Because of how often he's referencing love. Uh, Eighty times in his writings, he is turning to this most central aspect of God in his love and what that means in and through us. Um, While we stand with church history and giving credit to John for these three letters that we'll study over the coming weeks and months, Uh, We must remember, church, the ultimate author of this letter is God. This is God's word for us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God. That word in the Greek is theopneustos. It means God breathed. God inspired perfectly certain prophets and apostles to write down exactly what God wants us to know. what he wants revealed to us, to know about him or his commands, his promises. 2 Peter 1.21 says that God moved certain prophets. The word there means to literally carry along or overwhelm by force. The letters of John we need to see as God's divinely inspired words for us. Jesus promised this in John 14, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all the things and bring you to remembrance of all that I've said to you. Later in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And so in this vein, the the words that, that Jesus chose, his apostle representatives to who, who he saved, who he taught, who he discipled, who he sent, and who the Lord ordained would author and pen the very words of Holy Scripture. The work of the Holy Spirit is the divine guidance in which we stand. These are the words of God, church. These are not my opinions. This is not history best captured. This is God's holy word for us. That we've come to it with reverence. That we come to it ready to be shaped, to be challenged, to be moved unto what honors the Lord. This is the foundation that Paul spoke of in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. That on the work of the prophets and the apostles that the church would grow. And that's we're doing that here today. We're growing in the words of God. The words he ordained to be penned into Holy Scripture. We believe. Um that this is the Word of God, and therefore worthy of our attention and our submission. Who is the audience of 1 John? Well, again, we're not given direct indication of who the recipients are of this letter, nor specifically where they were located. What we do know, according to the actual letter itself, is that John clearly knows them and loves them. He addresses them repeatedly throughout the letter as dear friends. In chapter 3, verse 13, he calls them brothers. And in many places, he refers to them as children. When he calls them children, he's not referring to actual children, like he just had a ton of kids. 
No, and he's not meaning to be demeaning in that. It's more of a reference among the family of God that he is trusted as a senior in the faith who's given authority over them. And so there's an affection, a family affection, but one that also shows uh, some authoritative uh, position over them. Without specific address, it's deduced that while John knows his hearers, this first letter is intended with a wider audience. We'll see some more specific address in the next two that when we get to them. But this letter is intended to have a more circular movement to it. In other words, it's meant to be passed among the local churches, and largely because they needed to be encouraged in these things pretty universally. The early church was facing much of a similar struggle of people rising up to bring contention, to bring uh, confusion about what the gospel really is, about what God really said and who Jesus really was. And so this is something that was needed among many. More, one more thing about the audience of this letter is that it's clear that they were being unsettled persecuted in their faith we're going to see john refer to people that he deems or terms antichrist and or false prophets people who are manipulating or perverting the true gospel or fundamental christian truths such core things we're going to see right out the gate this morning that were being questioned was even jesus incarnation that he truly was god the son who took on flesh and that he was the actual promised Messiah, the actual Christ, to name just a few. These false prophets who claimed to know God, but as we're going to see, their testimony was that they continued to walk in darkness. They did not keep with God's commandments, or walk in step with the gospel, or bear the fruit that shows that they truly belong to him. Some of these so-called antichrists were individuals at one time, even among faithful members of the local body, but proved in the end to not be submitted to Christ as Lord, but ultimately to themselves. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Jesus said so much in, in his counsel to the church. He spoke in Matthew 7, uh, 15 through 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Similarly, Peter later warned the Ephesian elders that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Acts 20, 29-30. Surely we will dive further into these things in the coming weeks as we move into these different passages. But finally, by way of introduction, let's consider the purpose of 1 John. John writes his historic gospel with a clear purpose stated in chapter 20, verse 31. Church, we spent two years studying this gospel. We spoke of this purpose often. The purpose in writing the gospel, not the letter we're about to study, was these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Now, John writes his letters to reassure his believing brethren who belong to Christ, who, who are of true faith. He wants them to have certainty of what is true, of who they are in Christ, and what it looks like to live for him and love others as he has commanded us. In this, John wants to train them up to better identify truth versus lies, to embolden their faith in Christ so that their love and witness would be bold. It is from these mega-themes as we study this letter uh, and the others that we gain our main three themes in our artwork on the front of your bulletin and advertised for our sermon series. John wants to embolden them in truth, in certainty, and in love. Why is 1 John helpful for us today? Why the elders chose this to be the next book we would study? Uh, it, just to grow in truth and certainty and love surely is going to be a true blessing. The other reality is that we're in a time of much doctrinal indifference and ignorance in our society. There is a constant barrage today of secular spiritualism, of false religions, or just plain unbiblical reasoning that is coming fast at us all the time. Even in many churches, biblical truth is often one of the first things to be set aside in many manners of church politics uh, or efforts to keep people happy, to keep them attending. So we, we set aside biblical truth. Oh, this is a compromise for Christ's church, one that Christ's church can't have, that it should never tolerate, or it cease to be Christ's church. It becomes something else altogether. Theologian Robert Yarborough said it well, Christians in the subsequent periods need not be demoralized when deception, corruption, or falsehood arise. There are resources for offsetting these ills, because they are precisely the things that Christ came to challenge and vanquish, and then to give his followers victory over as they respond to him by faith. Many disillusioned at the wrongdoing in the church. First John reminds readers that the first problem is to confront the person in the mirror. The daily lot of every Christian is to confess his or her sins. First John 1 9. From that point, and only from that point, John's letter goes on to commend a God of light, truth, love, hope, and life, who through His Son and Spirit works renewal where darkness once lay deep and consistently threatens to reemerge. True godliness in John's conception consists of a deep-rooted devotion of the heart of God. This is love. It changes not only our regard for God, but for other people. With that, I'm excited for us to jump into this letter today. First, I want to pray, and then we'll read our opening text together. Let's pray. Father, these new beginnings are exciting. To, to be committed to study and know rightly your word. Uh, that you have gone before elders in our prayer and preparation, gone before me with many hours of study and time with you to effort to rightly divide the word. Uh, 
that you would now move in the hearing of the word, uh, that that you would remove distraction, remove excuse, that you would identify the Holy Spirit would, would bring identification of sin and where there's walls and barriers and excuses, to, that that you would do a mighty work to tear that down to create and mold and shape your people in sanctification, in in grabbing hold of what is true and commending ourselves to it, that we'd be devoted to not just go through the motions of our Christianity, our religious attendance, but we'd be transformed. We'd be constantly being sanctified and matured in the faith. And so here we are, Lord, ready for you to take us forth. You would not leave us where we begin We look back many weeks and months over this journey and see a mighty work that you've done in and through us. We're committed to you. We love being your people. We love being Bereans of the Scriptures. Do your work in us now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and to testify to it and to proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Good word of our Lord. First John 1 John 1.1, John opens with these verses of stout Christological grounding for his hearers. Christological is a big theological word. Christology is the study of who is Jesus Christ and what he came to do. John is starting right at the gate to firm up who he is and what he came to do. The word of life, the gospel, what is it? He starts with that which is from the beginning. And in these words, we see a very similar opening to that which he started his gospel. In the beginning was the word, he said, in John 1.1. And the word was with God and the word was God. If I were to read this to you, you had no prior knowledge of who he's talking about, you would want to raise a hand. Who is this one he's referring to is the Word? And this is an important answer. Uh, we have, again, we look to Scripture to interpret Scripture. The opening words of the letter of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, We learn here that Jesus is the spokesperson of the Godhead. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Word. In Revelation 1.8, He's referred to as the Alpha and Omega. He is God's alphabet. The one who spells out the deity. Who utters the Word of God. Even clearer is back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John calling Jesus the Word is his way of declaring the biblical truth that Jesus is the spoke person of God. 
the one who has declared or told forth the Godhead. This is huge. We consider the vastness, the incomprehensibility of God, that God makes himself known through Christ, the Word. Christ, as the Word, reveals the attributes, the perfections of God. Jesus displays his power. He manifests his wisdom. He exhibits his holiness. He makes known his grace. He unveils God's heart. In Christ, like nowhere or in nothing else, God is revealed to us. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Colossians 1.15. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. John, both in his gospel, in the opening verses, and now in his first letter, is showing us this huge, game-changing truth. God has made Himself manifest, made Himself known by His Word, Jesus Christ. Now, in the opening words of 1 John, that which was from the beginning... Let's pause and consider that. If Jesus was in the beginning, then he himself was without beginning. Which is the negative way of saying Jesus is eternal. Jesus speaks clearly of this essential truth in his prayer to God the Father, revealed in John's Gospel, chapter 17. He said to God the Father, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 17, verse 5. If Jesus is in the beginning, that is before all creation, he himself is not created. Instead, he is confirming the absolute deity and specifically the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of Our verse, John says that this is concerning the word of life. The word of life is the gospel. It's the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that brings about new life for all who trust in him alone. See with me, the gospel is grounded in eternity past. It's not an afterthought. It is the perfect eternal plan of God to save us, that we would become His own. If you're tracking, then you're remembering back to where we started Ephesians a year and a half ago and that beautiful opening chapter of Ephesians chapter 1 of the eternal plan of God to save His redeemed before anything was made. We're speaking of this most essential truth about Jesus' eternality. That He's without beginning. Church, our our faith is built on this in an important way. That This isn't just high theology I'm teaching you here. We have to have this rightly in view. Jesus is the one who is able, more than able, not only to teach us, command us, model how to live righteously for us. He's the only one able to substitute Himself in our place in death pay for our sin to satisfy fully and perfectly God's wrath and rise to conquer death to be the firstborn of the redeemed. He's Jesus Christ. He is the eternal God the Son. When everything that had its beginning began, He was there. And oh, how we should worship Him. 
Paul confirms this truth when he says to the church in Colossae, speaking of Jesus, He is before all things. Colossians 1.17 So you're going, okay, pastor, I get it. He's eternal. And it is. It's important to affirm the second person of the triune Godhead. God the Son, Jesus, has always existed as God the Son. Do you also know that? That he doesn't take that title on later. There has always been eternally a father-son relationship in the Godhead. This doctrine recognizes the sonship is not merely a title or a role that he take on. He took on at some specific point in history to serve a specific purpose. It is an essential part of the identity of the second person of the Godhead. Christ is and always has been God the Son. Hebrews 3.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know many churches, and some of you haven't really been in a number of other churches, who actually have that as their main verse that hangs over their stage. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why would a church fly that as their main verse? The very point of why Paul is going here for the benefit of his hearers, the main point of why I'm slowing to really make sure we capture these opening words, that you see how Jesus is unchanging. He is the rock that you must stand on, trust in, hope in, in the midst of a world where everything is constantly changing, where things seem so uncertain that right now, even in the beginning tenets of his words of this letter, there is affirming up a certainty, a grounding that we have in the eternal God the Son, Jesus Christ. One of the biggest heresies about the eternality of Christ is known as Arianism. Arianism is a heretical teaching founded by the teaching of Arius, circa 250 to 336. He's an Alexandrian priest, falsely taught that the Son of God was created by God the Father, therefore not co-eternal with him. The Arian thought was based on the idea that because God is one, Jesus could not also truly be God. It's, it's a bad tangent of belief that's not built on Scripture. Um, it is the belief and ongoing teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses. It's heresy. It's a fundamental miss in what Scripture teaches about the eternality of Christ. We must understand If Jesus is not equally a part of the eternal Godhead as a distinct but equal divine with the Father and the Spirit, then so much of our theology, salvation, and hope is broken. It cannot stand. The Bible simply does not teach this, and we must be careful to never allow it to cause confusion. The prophecy of old regarding the promised Messiah even spoke of the eternality of Christ, that he was coming forth from old, from ancient days, says Micah 5.2. Church, the gospel of Jesus, the word of life, is that it is from eternity past. God had a plan before time to send his Son to redeem us to himself. And it's upon this glorious fact that he begins to pen this letter. Look at it with me again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it, 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now we move into a second but glorious doctrine of Jesus Christ in Christology. That is the incarnation of Christ. Later in the letter, John is going to state that false teachers were denying among the brethren that Jesus actually was God who took on flesh. 1 John 4, 2, and, and so we'll get there later, but knowing that his hearers were being confounded with these lies, John gets right to the second fact of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of life, that God the Son took on flesh, known as the incarnation of Jesus The opening words of John's Gospel also makes this point. And maybe one of the most specific, clear, and important places of all of Holy Scripture, John 1.14. The Word, again speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth word reference to Jesus the living and eternal God the Son takes on human form takes on a human nature that which was from the beginning John says in our opening verse which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life God of the universe in a body like yours and mine why why does this matter why is John spending so much time in these first few verses to talk about the manifestation of God the Son, about us being able to see, hear, and touch. And the the answer is simple, because we can touch flesh. We can identify with it. You can wrap your arms around it and feel its heartbeat. And most specifically, for the work of the Word of Life, for the Gospel, you can pierce it and it will bleed. You can kill it on a cross. This is the doctrine of the Incarnation. God the Son to take on flesh. It's what we celebrate every Christmas in the birth of Jesus. He became what He was not previously, though He never ceased to be all that He was before. The fact that Jesus is fully God and became fully man is important to our salvation and His redemptive work as the Messiah because He had to be like us in every way to be our representative and yet without sin to be the perfect, complete, and lasting sacrifice for all our sin. This is the clarity, again, given in Holy Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be made like us. The incarnation took on flesh. He took on meat. Carne, incarnation. That root word there is carne, meat, flesh. So when John says here in 1 John 1, 1, we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then in verse 2, we've seen it. And then in verse 3, we've seen and heard. He's saying here, He's virtually swearing in a deposition-like manner to the fact that they literally witnessed and knew God the Son in the flesh. 
He's reminding his brethren, you know this with me. You were there. You saw him too. You heard him. You, you touched him too. He was real. John and those he writes to have walked with him. They've rubbed shoulders with Jesus. The Gospels speak of John literally resting his head on Jesus. They were very close. In other words, what he's getting at here and what's key for us to see in this is their testimony was not one of those where someone goes, oh yeah, I know that guy, because that person like saw them in a public square sometime and now they act like they're best buddies. Uh, yeah, 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 I, I saw that guy. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, I know him. Hi, how do you know him? Yeah, you don't really actually know him, do you? No. Yeah, but I saw him. He was like 80 feet away, but it was awesome. You know, no, that, that's not what this is. John's saying, we did life with Jesus. We ran together. He, he's saying to embolden them not to be persuaded by these false teachers who claim that God didn't, God the Son did not incarnate. He did not walk among them. He's saying, no, you are the witnesses whom God ordained would live in this era in history and substantiate what happened with the incarnate Christ. It's you. A plurality of valid witnesses is a critical component of substantiating something to be true. That's still true today. For someone to be proven guilty, there needs to be witnesses. Otherwise people make false claims that are all over the place. Scripture is didactic and clear how how seriously God takes righteous accusation and or witness. This is why Paul instructs Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.19 Validating testimony with others is critical. Church, we rest on a vast testimony of many, of hundreds, Scripture testifies, who validated the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we too are commissioned by God, as we see in Acts 1.8 and other places, to be witnesses today in what Jesus came to do. He has done it in many of us. The life change that he's brought about in our lives to transform us is substantial. And in that is an important clarity. True witnesses speak not of what they've gathered secondhand, but only from what they have actually witnessed themselves. While John and those he writes to were with Jesus in person, physically heard, saw, and touched Jesus, we who are Christ's witnesses today have our testimony not based on second hand, but on the direct work of the Holy Spirit to give each of us who belong to Him eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel that has literally transformed your life. The word of life has given us spiritual life, and now we are direct witnesses of God's personal work in and through our lives. This is the testimony you are to share with many. Not that you have to share Jim Bob or Sally Joe's testimony. If you belong to Christ, you share your own. You are a witness. 
of what God has done for you. Before moving on, let me highlight a fun fact. As John says here in verse 1, all of these truths about Christ are concerning the word of life. The reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ being that of life is one of the most Jonanine terms we have in Scripture. Jonanine is a reference of pastors and theologians when we study um, the, the historic writings and you see and you ascribe certain kinds of teaching or counsel attributed to one. And so Jonanine is the way we talk about the unique writings of John. And his emphasis on life is so Jonanine. In that, he references life 36 times in his gospel, 13 times in his letter, 17 times in Revelation. And understand, his emphasis here is not just on physical life, but on spiritual life. Jesus said it well, church. John 10.10 The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This was the prophecy for the old, of old for the spiritual and eternal life that God would bring for His elect. And we see all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, that you may live. That's spiritual life. He's talking to people who are physically alive about needing spiritual life. Or maybe the most famous place we consider this truth at work, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that all the believing into him should not perish, but have eternal life. The eternal God ordained God the Son to take on flesh so that we can have life. His life given for ours. And John says, you are the witnesses to this most amazing fact in human history. And again, with that great emphasis in verse 2, look at it with me again. The life was made manifest, that we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Praise be to God. These are the groundings of the gospel that give us new life. May they cause us to well up with authentic worship and devotion to Him. Now look with me at verse 3. Reconciliation of Jesus. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. See, one of the fundamental things the gospel does is it reconciles us to the Holy God. At the fall of mankind, mankind was separated from the Holy God. This is how the Holy God remained holy. He would not have fellowship with that which is sinful. And so there's separation, all the fallout of sin. But in the gospel, 
we who are saved, who have saving faith in him, who died to self and trust our lives to Jesus, we are reconciled to God. The holy God looks upon us, sees the perfection of the Son in our place, and we are forgiven. We are, we are adopted to be his forever. That reconciliation, though, as glorious as it is to have with God, is also very wonderful in the fact that it means true and, and real reconciliation with each other each other who belong to Christ. One of the prime blessings of salvation in Christ, one of the best things the gospel of Jesus brings about in our life, is reconciliation and true fellowship with the beloved, with the redeemed, with the church. Disciples, family, you must never lose sight of the grand and game-changing reality that life in Christ is, not just in salvation, but also in reunification and reconciliation with that which, what, which was utterly broken in sin. Fellowship with God and with each other. Community, true and lasting family, true and lasting belonging. These are the sweet riches that we have of faith in Christ. And I pray you see the blessing it is to be the church far more than you think of the benefits of just attending church. When you finally taste the difference, it's a whole new world and joy to live in faith together. Jesus emphasizes this sweet reality and all the things he could have talked about with God the Father before arrest and hung on the cross. Jesus goes to God the Father in prayer and prays this. John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then later in that same prayer, verse 20 through 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. Now he's praying for us. He prayed for the disciples, now he's praying for us. Those who would study know of his elect in a future generation, that we would be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. If you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray more than anything that it would be God's perfect plan to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. See your sin before the Holy God, that you would confess it as sin before Him, and you would trust your life to Jesus. You no longer desire to be the Lord of your own life. You want Him to rule you. You want to belong to Him. This is saving faith. You are damned if you stand on your own before the Holy God. For nothing you will ever do can cover the stain of your lifelong sin before His holy standard. Only Christ in your place can bring true salvation, forgiveness, and new birth. I pray it is so. If not today, then soon. If and only when you trust in the Lord Jesus and are saved, are you reconciled to God and with all the redeemed who will enjoy fellowship with him forever. 
First John 1, 3, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, the church has cheapened this word fellowship. We put it on our walls. We put it in our advertisements. We talk about fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. And, and what we've turned it into is just hanging out together. It's just like, it's just time together. That, that's all fellowship has become. That's fellowship. Fellowship in Scripture is koinonia. It is an intimate connection with the beloved in Christ. It's not just hanging out. You, you can't have fellowship with unbelieving people. You don't have spiritual life together with them. You, you are lacking something fundamental to bring of the utmost of connection in Christ. True fellowship is devoted to the family of God. And so when we hear that word of gathering for fellowship or we dismiss for a time of fellowship following the service, there's a, there's a bond we have. There's an intimacy we have with each other. It's not casual. It means something. It's, it's something very dear. It's an affection, a depth that we have with blood-bought family. Fellowship is something that is so special that we only have it with other Christians because of the gospel of Jesus. And so the word fellowship needs to fall into this category. We need, we need to see the importance of the fellowship of what it means to be in the body, that it would refine you, that it would mobilize you. This is why so much scripture speaks of an attentiveness to the practicing of the one another's. So that there would not become among us disagreement, um, disunity. Ephesians 4.3 says we are to make every effort for the unity. That you're never to be content where there's disunity happening among the brethren. For in that disunity, that day we lie about what it means to be united in Christ. And so wherever that might exist in you, whatever grudge Whatever beef, God gives the scripture to unify us. It's why, it's why God's word says we are not even to have lawsuits against each other. Why? The matter is to be settled by the word. It's, it's, it, there, there's a unity. There's a deference. There, there's, what we have together is to be more important than anything that might divide us. And he gives us a form and a function, a way to find our way through the things that might divide us. And a call to forgive one another. A call to, to walk in unity. And the very, the very unity that, that Rob spoke of earlier in the Lord's Supper. All of the scrutiny around that ordinance to be united. The, the fact that Paul is completely lamblasting the the, the Corinthian church for the selfish things they had turned it into. You're, you're breaking down the very purpose of the ordinance. That we would submit to Christ, to His Word. We would work to have deep fellowship and unity. We're going to see this again and again. And we're going to see it in the next passage. Look with me at 1 John 1, 5-7. through It's the words you saw in the sermon series bumper this morning. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you see how the fellowship we have with one another is this essence of the very truth of our testimony and why when someone is unrepentant when someone is self-minded and all the process that scripture gives us to call that person to repentance to be in unity to submit to the lord when someone continues in unrepentance we are to disfellowship with them why because that testimony of disunity or of unrepentant sin lies about what it means to know and walk in jesus christ so, so we must lean in and see the, the, the desire of the Lord in these scriptures that we would know and practice this real fellowship in Christ together. Again, Robert Yarborough says it well. The fellowship of 1 John 1-3 grows out of and ought to translate into a certain buoyant affection for others and praise for the Lord because of the community participation in forgiveness of sin, transform lives, ennobling labor to bring about kinsome ends. This is a description of joy, a profound heartening, an infectious sense of how great the message of the cross is and what a privilege it is to share in the gospel benefits, ministry, and challenges. It is the joy of the presence of Christ Himself, the joy found in prayer and worship, the joy of conviction of God's goodness and love through His gift of eternal life in His Son. Beloved church family, my deep prayer is that you truly know this kind of fellowship with Christ and with each other. Surely more on this in the weeks to come. Finally, let's look to verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. C.E. Arnold once said, All the redeemed are brought into a close union with Christ where they experience great joy. God wants you to be joyful. He, He wants for you something that's bigger than happiness. And yet, so many of us are chasing happiness. You realize happiness is based on circumstantial matters. When circumstances don't go our way, which they often don't, then we're left unhappy, right? Constantly chasing it. You look back over a lifetime at the different things you thought would bring you happiness. Changes to this, changes to that, addition of this, subtraction of that. All the things that we put ourselves to, that we chased, and yet they all prove to be insufficient for lasting joy. They're fleeting. They're they're fragile. You can't set your life on it and have lasting joy. No, only in Christ can you know lasting joy. Listen to Jesus' words. John 16, 20-24. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament But the world will rejoice. 
You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying there's a reality of struggle that we're going to have. That only in Him do we know joy. Will we have joy? And that joy can't be taken from us. The promise of God for the church that we must hang on every day. A truth that picks you up when you're in the pit of despair. When life is crumbling. When your health is failing. When your loved ones are abandoning you. When your boss is firing you. When your kids are running the other direction. When we experience so many of these truly hard things of life, for the Christian, it's always on a foundation of joy in Christ. And so there's a a reality that there is sorrow, there is hardship. This is how Paul is able to say that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That either sounds like the words of a madman, or someone who knew a foundational joy that had nothing to do with their circumstances. I plead with you, don't dismiss this truth. Don't miss it. That your joy would be complete in Christ. If you claim Christianity, you claim Jesus, but for some of you, you you live as though you don't know the fullness of what it means to be in Christ. Believers can rejoice in great suffering in this life because of the hope that they have in Him that lasts forever. It's fixed, it's grounded, it's secure. Not in how they manage the board game, not in how they they steward the pieces, but it's in His sovereign hands. It's, It's in His power that it's secured. Some of our struggle and suffering will be for a lifetime. It's so hard for me to see self-professing Christians walk because they're just tired of whatever circumstantial thing they're in. Romans 8.18, I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the mindset of a Christian. Did you catch what Jesus said? At verse 20, we will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful, he says. You know what that means? He's letting us know there's going to be times where you get down. Let's, let's deal with that for a moment. Do you ever feel like in the church, you never, you're not allowed to say, ouch? You have to be strong all the time. You have to show no wear and tear. But this is not the case. Christians hurt. Christians say, ouch. Exiles mourn. They're slowed down. Jesus said, it's going to affect you. But the difference between the Christian exile and the world's citizen 
is that we have a joy in Christ despite our trials and sorrow. Our struggle is not our end. It doesn't undo us. Because our feet, our life, our faith is on the rock. On Christ. Who endures. Who is faithful. Whose promises are true. In Him we hope. In His perfect, completed work are we saved and secured. Not in our performance. So it helps us in the midst of great trials. When we're needing to be honest with someone and say, I'm struggling. But love me enough not to lead me there. To reorient me to Jesus. That, 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 it, that the joy I have in Christ would help me to press through to the top. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is real. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Hear this today. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament promises that believers will escape affliction in this life. For in God's sovereignty, He often uses our struggle and suffering for His eternal purposes. Jesus says, I'm going to see you again. Your hearts are going to rejoice. See how personally He makes it. I'm going to see you again. We're going to be together forever. And so we look forward with great anticipation to this. But he also says, no one can take your joy from you. It's established in him. It's held by him. It's not fleeting. It's not momentary like that pursuit of happiness based on circumstantial stuff. And so have you been all upside down lately? Have you been upset beside yourself? Distanced from other believers? You're fixed on your circumstances. Recenter yourself in who you are in Christ. And allow Him to go to work in the midst of those things. Go to the Word to define you. Lean on your shepherds to lead you. Lean on your brethren to hold you up, pray for you, hold you accountable. One of the best signs that you're getting it wrong is when you want to pull the ripcord and all alone you're like, this is the best way to do this. You want to know that it's one of the best tests of are you missing the mark? Are you standing all by yourself? That we use these beautiful resources that, of who we are in Christ, the fellowship we have, that our joy be complete in Him. He's the one who secures our eternity, our eternal joy. Jeremiah 32 17. Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so I rest in Him. Even as I'm praying, Lord, remove this cup. Lord, heal this beloved one. Lord, provide this job. Lord, I'm tired of my failing health. But I know that all things are possible. So if I continue in it, I walk by faith in it. For my joy is not linked to it. It's linked to you. We need to see your security for eternity. Not just as divine walls around a holy city. But it's active. It's the power of God. Whom no one can break through. Who has your salvation secured. 
Listen to Jesus' words, John 10, 27-29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Amen? We stand on this. He did not make a mistake in your election. He did not make a mistake on the cross. He did not make a mistake in your new birth. He doesn't make a mistake in enduring you to the end. No one can take away your greatest joy if it's in Christ. Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is to this ultimate end that he who is from the beginning, who appeared in time, who lived without sin, died for many, many who were nothing but guilty of sin, rose to conquer the grave as the first among those whom he would save, that we would have reconciliation and fellowship with God and one another, that that fellowship would be based on the eternal relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in which we will experience now and all the more forever the fullness of joy. My prayer is the same as, Paul, as John in verse 4, writing these things so that your joy may be complete. My prayer for us as we journey through this, these letters of John, as your faith matures and deepens in Christ alone, that your joy would be complete. Here we go, church. Number one is done. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. We have much to rejoice in. Here we are, Lord God, we're yours. These days are not ours. This Sunday morning doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you. Where else would we be? Where else would we want to be than with you to worship you, to break bread, testify the gospel, to pray together, to to submit ourselves to your holy word. Do your work in us, Lord God. Take us where we need to go. Be exalted, magnified. Save many who are guilty who bring nothing. Help them to see they need bring nothing. Jesus did it all. But as you give them eyes to see and ears to hear, that they would have no excuse. They would confess their sin and trust their lives to you. That you truly would be their Lord. Take us where we need to go. For your glory. For others, many others good. And for our eternal joy. We rejoice in the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.